it's good to see you. If, if you're new here, welcome to Redemption Parker. My name is Mark. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my joy and privilege just to worship with you together and to open up God's Word with you. If you're just joining us, we are uh, working our way through uh, the story of Jesus as told by, the go- by, by John. So we're in the Gospel of John. We're coming at the end. Uh, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, you can begin to work your way to John chapter 20 or turn, turn, turn on to John chapter 20, whatever it is, 2018, and uh, we'll, we'll be in that tonight, today. So let me pray for us, and then... Um, We'll, we'll dive in. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for already the opportunity to enjoy uh, creation this morning, enjoy the sun and the mountains and enjoy praise and enjoy uh, time together as your family, your faith family. God, I pray now that you would uh, just meet us in your word once again. What a privilege it is that you would, you would speak to each of us uh, by your word, through your spirit. I pray that you would do that. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you know every person here. You know their hearts, you know their struggles, you know their pain, you know their joys and their sorrows. You know what they need. And so I pray, Lord, that I would be able to, uh, in some real way, get out of the way and um, have your spirit work through your word and the proclamation of your word today to the end that Jesus is seen, that he's savored, and that he is glorified. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as, as I've seen on social media and Instagram, I know some of you have some amazing uh, Instagram feeds with your Christmas trees and, and your decorations. You're doing awesome there. But, uh, but it just kind of speaks to the pressure that we feel at this time of year to, to have it all together. Like more than any other time of year, this time of year, really, like to get the right gift, to have the right thing, to have the right meal, all those things are just kind of a microcosm of where we're at as a culture. And one of the things that, uh, tragically, as a culture, we've, in our, in our individualism, uh, we, we've come up with this idea that it's on us, individually, to determine uh, our identity, our value, our purpose, our mission, and, and all those things are heavy things. And so when you carry those around, that, that it's on you to, to decide what your value is and your purpose and your identity, and to, then to present that to the world through social media and, and, and make sure you present it in such a way that everyone thinks you have your life together, that's just increasing the pressure. That's not helping anyone. In fact, we see that uh, all sorts of stress and anxiety and depression and other things are, are, are being birthed out of the pressure we feel in a, this hyper-individualized culture that says, you determine your way. You find your own value. You create your story. You be the star of your own story. And, and you and I, quite frankly, the Bible's going to say, we're never meant to carry those things. The Bible is going to say to us, whoever told you you had to determine your own identity, whoever told you you had to find your own value, your own purpose, your own story. G.K. Chesterton once said, he said, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. He's absolutely right. It's not that we need to have it all together and find value, meaning, identity, purpose, all those things and present those to the world. It's, it's that there, there is a God that he created us. Our value is inherent because we are created by him and for him. We bear his image. He's given us purpose, value, mission, identity. All those things are meant to be found in him. But when we seek them in ourselves, uh, there, there's just going to be this pressure because we were never meant to carry and, and build that weight on our shoulders. Well, the best way to do that is to find yourself not in your story, but in God's cosmic story. 
Today we, we, we start Advent, and, and Advent is really a, a, a bridge between the third and the fourth final chapter of God's cosmic story. The, the meta-narrative of Scripture, we often like to say, is, is the overarching story of the Bible. In these 66 books, with over 40 different human authors, all empowered by the Spirit of God, and on three different continents and three different languages, is ultimately telling one story. Do you know what the story of this book is? It's creation Fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So Genesis chapter one, in the beginning was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and right away we're told that God is in control. You're here on purpose. You're not a cosmic accident. God, who in his divine foreknowledge and, and power and mercy and all those things gathers and he he creates. And we read about it in Genesis and, and what he created. He could have done anything, but he created a very tangible, physical world. And, and we see in Genesis chapter 1 that what he created, he's really into. Like he digs stars and quasars and galaxies and mountains and trees and rivers and oceans and fish and birds and, and hot wings and pizza. And, and like, like God is delighted in these things. And once his creation to enjoy these things. And, and in that creation, the pinnacle of his creation, he says he creates man and woman in his image to bear his image to the world, to enjoy his creation. And so that was the first kind of chapter, literally, but also figuratively in the, the story of God. And, and well, he had a many, many chapters before that, but where we find our place in the story of God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, not long into the story, uh, we don't know how long chronologically, but in the Bible, just in a couple chapters, uh, God places Adam and Eve in the garden and says, I want you to enjoy it. I want you to delight it. I want you to work it and take care of it. And there's just one rule, so just to remind you that you are the creature, not the creator. Just one rule to submit yourself to me. Don't eat of that tree. You can have anything else. All of the rest of creation is for you to delight in and enjoy and smell and taste and, and cultivate. All those things are for you and for your pleasure because I'm a good God and I'll walk with you. But we know the, the tragic story, right? Adam and Eve said, well, we'd like to create our own story. We'd like to find our own purpose. We'd like to find our own meaning. And, and they ate of the tree after the temptation by the serpent. And, and, and sin entered into the world. And brokenness entered into the world. And suffering into the world. And sickness and death entered into the world. But even in that moment, the story of God was still unfolding. That didn't surprise God at all. In fact, he knew that would happen. He planned for that to happen. And, and in, even in that moment, he said, uh, I'm going to send a redeemer. The serpent that came and deceived you, I'm going to send a snake crusher. He'll come and crush the head of the serpent. So we go creation, fall, and, and then promises of redemption. Generation after generation, God showing his faithful love, coming to people, rescuing them, uh, loving them, and them uh, receiving it sometimes, but most of the time turning their back on him and going headlong the other way. But he sent prophet after prophet, and the prophet said, a redeemer is coming, a redeemer is coming, a redeemer is coming. Uh, they were putting in the heart of the people a longing for Christmas, that day when the redeemer would come. And so Luke tells us, that when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, Jesus stepped down from heaven in glory and entered into our world. He, he uh, put on flesh. 
chili con carne, beans with meat. This is the incarnation. He, he put on meat. This is literally what he did. He put on meat. He entered into our world, and he began the redemption chapter, the redemption project. And for the last 35 weeks, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've had a front row view of, of what it means to live life as it was always intended, to live life full of meaning, full of purpose, to live life before the face of God. And he showed us that this kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's an upside-down kingdom. The first, the, the first are last and the last are first. The poor become rich. The oppressed get set free. And Jesus taught us and he showed us that we were made by him and for him. All of our hunger, all of our thirst was meant to be satisfied in him. But then last week we looked at when redemption really began to be accomplished. This God who stepped down from glory st- stepped up and went to the cross. And we saw last week that he bore on the cross the the justified wrath of God, of a holy God against your sin and my sin. And on the cross, he took our place and died, suffered and died for us. But that's not when redemption was complete. You say, well, Mark, didn't last week, didn't he say it is finished? The, The suffering was finished. So it's one side of the coin of redemption was finished, but there's another side that we get a look at today. Resurrection. And resurrection launches us into the third chapter, the ultimate hope that we're still waiting for. Did you know Advent, historically, is not about Christmas? Historically, Advent is a time for the church to come together. And and remember, the story's not complete. We have creation, we have fall. In Jesus, we have redemption, and we're waiting for restoration. And so just as they waited for Jesus to come the first time, we now look at these candles and remember hope, joy, peace, love, light, Christ, and we long for him to come back. And the resurrection is the down payment that that will happen. So that's a 30,000-foot view of your place in the story. We stand between redemption and restoration. We, we have been redeemed by Christ, but, but all things have not yet been restored. They're being restored, but they won't ultimately be fully restored until Jesus comes back. And that's where we find ourselves in the story. So I want to look at it from the ground level now through the eyes of one Mary Magdalene. So if you have your Bible, Gen- or Genesis, John chapter 20, verse 1, says this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, if you've been with us or you know the Gospel of John, you know that John is always speaking to us on multiple levels. So on the one hand, he's just telling what happened. Early Easter Sunday morning, before the sun had rose, Mary Magdalene goes out and she's, she's going to go to the tomb. Now, Mary Magdalene is someone who uh, had her life absolutely transformed by Jesus. The other gospels tell us that she had seven demons that Jesus cast out of her. And that's probably just a representative number of a multitude of demons. But her life before Christ was brokenness, sin, suffering, addiction. Uh, It was all those things. And then one day Jesus stepped into her life and Jesus set her free. And she saw in Jesus uh, his, his glory, his grace, his mercy, his love. And she became a follower. Jesus was everything to her. And so she began to follow Jesus. She thought life was being lived as life was always meant to be lived, but now, three days later, it all came crashing down. She saw this Jesus, whom she loved, 
who had rescued her from this life of sin and and oppression. Uh, She saw him dying on a cross. She was there. She saw him bleeding. She saw him crying out to his father. She saw him die. She saw the Roman soldier come stick his spear in his side. She saw them take him off the cross. She saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus begin to wrap his body and with 75 pounds of very expensive ointments and spices, wrap his body and place it in a tomb. Her world is crushed right now. But because she had a good view of creation, she wanted to give one last honor to Jesus. She, she knew that Joseph and Nicodemus had already done the this burial rites, but she wanted to go and, and serve the body of Jesus because the body matters. And, and so she uh, was headed out there when it was dark. But again, that's just the surface level, right? When, when John says on the first day, he wants you to think of something else. What else happens on the first day? Creation happens on the first day. Remember how John starts his gospel. He's echoing Genesis chapter 1. And so when you read about the first day, he doesn't say on the third day or he doesn't mention that it's Sunday or whatever. He just says on the first day, something new is about to happen. And so look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I think I have it on the screen here if that's working. It says this, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. In the darkness, the Spirit was about to go to work. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. See, See, what John is saying is that Mary... She's walking in physical darkness, but she's walking in emotional, spiritual, in every sense, in darkness. Like Nicodemus, who came to him in chapter 3, he came at night, but he was also spiritually in the dark. In John chapter 1, he starts his own, the gospel, echoing Genesis chapter 1. But look what he says there. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's Jesus. All things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. So now we have Mary walking in darkness, walking in in absolute uh, brokenness, walking. It's her worst day ever. And as she comes to the tomb, she's able to see that something is immediately wrong. The stone has been rolled away. And she comes to the same conclusion you and I would come to. We expect dead bodies to stay dead. And so when the stone is rolled away and she can't really see, but she knows that it's empty in there, she's thinking, oh no, someone saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapping his body with the very expensive ointment and linens and very valuable. And they've come, and this is not an uncommon occurrence, grave robbers have taken the body. And so now she's frantic. Now this is the ultimate injustice to her, her best friend, to Jesus, and she just wants to find the body, and so she's desperate. Have you ever been desperate to really find someone or something? She's desperate. Any parent here who's lost a toddler in a crowd for however long, there, there's that, that, that desperation, right? We, we were in Italy earlier this year in Savona, and my family had gone into a store, and I was waiting outside, and I, I began to hear the cries of a mother ser- clearly searching for their, his, her, do- his, her son. Sorry. I heard, Antonio, Antonio. And she's, 
screaming. And before I even saw her, I could tell something's wrong. She's missing her son. And she came around the corner and she's crying out, Antonio, Antonio. And everyone's just looking around, looking, is there any little kids walking around? She can't find She runs across the square, screaming out his name. She looks down each street. She screams out his name. She eventually goes around the corner and we're all like, oh man, how tragic that is. She can't find her son. That's what Mary is feeling right now. This, this desperation. We know it's desperation because look what she does. So she ran. She ran. To run as an adult in the Middle East, even today, but even back then, is a disgraceful thing to do. You only do that out of absolute desperation. But she runs. Where does she run? She runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's, that's the writer of this. That's John. That's kind of his humble way of putting himself in the story. You know, the one Jesus loved. Uh, she ran to him too. That's me. And, and so, uh, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Again, even though Jesus had told them, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back three days later, none of them had a context for that. None of them uh, understood what he meant. They were always confused. They were not hyper-suggestible or given to hallucinations or, or, or just inventing this story. They, they thought Jesus would stay dead. That's what they thought dead bodies did. So it was not in their uh, imagination. Or as we said at Easter time, nobody expected to see no body. They're not, they're not trying to make up a story. They're, they're desperate. She's broken. She's, she's concerned. And so she goes to Peter. She goes to John. She tells them what happens. Now they're alarmed. And they start running. Look. So Peter went out, verse 3, with the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. Now for men to run in the Middle East, grown men, is even more of a disgrace even more of of an outside-the-box kind of thing. But Peter and John, they run. And then I just love John. I love that the Bible has humor because John, remember, is the one writing the story, right? So notice what he adds in the rest of that. He says, both of them were running together. But the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He's just like, just so you know, I'm going to write this down. Holy Spirit, is this okay? Because I want to keep this forever. That, that I'm faster than Peter. Like John probably had brothers, right? Like he, he's just like, Let's, this is going to be in there forever. Just so everyone knows, I got there first, okay? I, I, I was, I'm faster. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Now the word that, that John uses to see, see here, there's lots of words you can use to for the word saw. But the word he uses here is thereo. We get the word theorize. In a sense, he's looking in and he's trying to theorize what is going on. Like, this doesn't make sense. If, if grave robbers came, they would take that which is valuable, the, the, the linen cloths and the spices, and they would maybe leave the body, but, not, but there's, this is the opposite. It doesn't make sense. And so he's trying to theorize what, what is happening here. The, the valuable stuff's there. The body's gone. We don't know what's going on. And so he's theorizing. And then, so Simon Peter came following him and, and went into the tomb. That's Peter. He's impetuous. He just barges in. He, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So, so some commentators say that, that 
what's a possibility here is the, the, the linen cloths that were wrapped around the body were like a shell of the body, kind of like a locust shell when a locust leaves its shell. It's still there, and yet it's empty, and so that doesn't make any sense. But then off to the side, the, the cloth that would have been wrapped around the head had been carefully taken off and folded meticulously and placed specifically at the, on, on the bench there. Like, what is going on there? I mean, Jesus made his bed. That's the first thing that happened as, as he came back to life. He made his bed. But, but John also wants us to think about another time. John chapter 11, Lazarus came back from the dead. But when he came back, he was bound in the linen cloth, right? And, and Jesus called him out. But, but what John is showing is this isn't someone uh, doing what Jesus did for Lazarus. This is intrinsic power, not extrinsic. In his own power, he raises himself up. He takes off the cloth. He folds it. And then the tomb's empty. So he's, now John is theorizing. Remember, he's theorizing here. Verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just in case you forgot, also went in and he saw, but now the word is oida. It means he, it means he saw, he knew, or, or he had connected the dots. He saw and believed. What did he believe? So clearly, he didn't have a full orb sense of what the resurrection meant and all of the life-changing implications, the eternity-changing implications. But, but what he believed was that God was at work in this place. This, this isn't grave robbers. This isn't an accident. But, but he saw and he believed. Verse 9, for as is yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now we come back to Mary, verse 11. Mary has worked her way back to the garden. She's crying. She's weeping. She's sobbing. Her, her shoulders are heaving. There's snot. There's tears. She doesn't care. And she doesn't care what she looks like. Everything. She's hit rock bottom. She has no hope in the world. Verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Just where is the body? Where is he? And then something amazing happens. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. The other gospels tell us that their, their appearance was like lightning. Now, in the, in the Bible, when, when an angel appears, the most often response is absolute terror. Like, if we had two angels just pop up right now, all of us would be on our face sucking dirt. Like, the, the, their heavenly beings would just terrify us because that's their, their power. But, but she's so broken. She's so uh, depressed. Like, it doesn't matter. She's like, angels, who cares? Whatever. Like, she, she can't even connect the dots that maybe God is doing something here and be sending angels to talk to you, but she doesn't get it yet. And... So she saw the two angels sitting there, verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? They're confused. In Luke's gospel, they, they say to her, why do you seek the living among the dead? They're confused. 1 Peter 1.12 12 tells us that angels are kind of confused about the whole redemption part of God's meta-narrative. It says they, they long to look in. It doesn't make sense to them, right? Just like man has fallen, a third of the angels fell too, but, but they don't get rescued. They don't get redeemed. They're not created in God's image. And so when God unfolds his redemption project, they're like, what? Why, why are you doing that? You're, you're holy. You're holy. You're king. And then when Jesus took on flesh, they're like, 
this doesn't make any sense, but okay, we'll go with it. And as Jesus is, is growing up and he's being mistreated, they're, they're looking at the Father and they're like, this is Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Why are you allowing this to happen? And they want to intervene and, and God holds them back. And then when he goes to the cross, they are absolutely confused. They're like, he, he's dying. Doesn't make any sense. But now it's... It's Easter Sunday. It's resurrection. They know what's happened. All of a sudden, things are starting to click. So in heaven, there, there's probably a party going on, right? There, there's, I don't know if angels high five. I don't know what's going on. But all of a sudden, everything has changed for them. They're like, we get it. We get it. So when they come to the tomb and they see Mary weeping and crying, they're like, what's wrong with you? Like, up, up in heaven, we got a party going on. It is an absolute rock. Yeah. That's what's going on in heaven. They're giving each other high fives. Jesus has come back. Like, it's a party. You thought they were American angels. They weren't. But they, they, they're, they're excited. So naturally, they're like, woman, why are you weeping? This is the worst day of her life when it should be the best day of her life. She's not getting it yet. And so... They ask her, but again, she's, she is so distraught, so broken, so sad. She, she's not even connecting the dots here. And so she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where, where they have laid him. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus, who she had followed for years, Jesus, who she loved, she saw. We we're not sure why she didn't recognize him. Probably because, she, again, she had no context. She was not expecting Jesus. If, if she was expecting Jesus, she was, she, he would need absolute medical treatment, but not some Jesus standing there with joy. And so she doesn't know who he is. And verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman... Why are you weeping? It's the same question the angels ask. I mean, the mariach is going in heaven. Like, it's going on. Woman, why are you weeping? But then he adds a question that is kind of hanging over all of John's gospel. And it's addressed to her, but it's addressed to you and me as well. He asks her, whom are you seeking? What, what kind of God did you expect? Mary, maybe your, your view of who I was is just too small. Whom are you seeking? It's this question that he continues to ask in John's gospel. Not just whom are you seeking, but what do you want? What does your heart desire? What are you really hungry for? What are you thirsty for? Do you know? Because I created you with that hunger. I created you with that thirst. I am the one that can satisfy you if you knew who you were seeking. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She mistakes him for the gardener. Now, now N.T. Wright, who's one of the best New Testament scholars in the world, has written a lot on the resurrection. He says, when she mistakes him for the gardener, she makes the right kind of mistake. See, Jesus, the first Adam was put in the garden to work it and take care of it, and he failed in his duties. Jesus is the second Adam, and He's put in the garden 
that he created, and he is now working it and taking care of it. In a sense, she's right to see him as the gardener. She just doesn't know that he is the ultimate gardener. He's begun the ultimate garden renewal project. He is going to make it once again beautiful into what it was intended to be. But then Jesus says something to her, a one-word sermon that absolutely changes her life. Jesus said to her, Mary. And when she heard her name, her eyes, her heart, her spirit was open. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I call them each by name. The way Jesus revealed himself to her, the way Jesus reveals himself to me and you is very personal. He calls you by name. He says, Mark, Bob, Aaron, Kaylee. And in hearing the name, everything changes for her. Her worst day becomes her best day. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabbi. Everything has changed in that moment. She's gone from, I think actually she's still crying. She's not weeping. Now the tears of joy are, are flooding. And whatever distance she, she had to cover, she runs to Jesus. And she, she runs to him. And she grabs Jesus around the neck. And she's holding him. And she's like, yes, Rabbi, Rabbi. Oh, Rabbi. Hold me. And she says, oh, Jesus, I think with laughter in his voice, look what he says. He says, don't hold me so tight. <laughs> don't cling on to me. He's like, you don't, have, you don't have to hold me. I'm back. I'm back, y'all. It's, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be different. But I'm back, flesh. You can smell me. You can, you can feel me. You can feel my breath. You can, you can touch me. You can hold me. I'm back. But I'm going to the Father. He says, don't cling tight to me. Literally, it says, don't, don't hold me so tightly. I think he's laughing when he says it. He says, but I haven't ascended to the Father yet. And then and just in another act of grace and mercy to her and to all of us, her who has been redeemed, who, her who has seen and savored him, he, he gives her a mission. He says, but go. But go. She gets the first great commission. Go. I want you to go. You who have been redeemed, you who are being restored, I want you to be uh, an agent of restoration and redemption in the world for me. So he says, go with the good news. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father. Look at this, and your father. Redemption is now complete. The doorway to the family of God is wide open once again. Enemies have become sons and daughters. I'm going to my father, but he's your father now. To my God and your God. Redemption is complete. Verse 18. See, he sends Mary out. I don't know how long they talked or chatted after that, but, but eventually she goes on her mission. She goes not out of burden, like, oh gosh, I got to go tell some people about this. She goes with joy. I imagine she ran again. <laughs> 
She ran again, this time out of joy. She ran and went and announced to the disciples. Now, that's probably a real conservative translation. She preached the word. She preached the gospel. The first gospel preacher is a woman, and she preaches the gospel. She says, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Now, the other gospels tell us that when she did that, they didn't believe her. But it didn't matter to her. It didn't matter to Jesus. She says, I, I just want you to go. I want you to tell the best news the world has ever heard. You just go. Don't worry if they believe you or not. You just be faithful and enjoy the mission. But, but, but there's something else here I want you to notice. She sends Mary out to be a, an instrument of restoration, the final chapter of God's plan. But Mary's just an ordinary person who has seen and savored and been transformed by Jesus. Sometimes I think in Christian American circles, we think, man, if we just get the right athlete to become a Christian or the right movie star, if Tebow could come back, Denver could get saved. Like, we put all our hope on, like, oh, but they, they have a lot of status, and, and they'll be good. But that's not the normal way that God expands his kingdom. It's through ordinary people like me and you. The hope of your neighborhood, the hope of your, your, your home, the hope of Parker is you. With a very ordinary message, I have seen the Lord. He is alive. Death could not hold him back. You tell your story. You tell what he's done in your life. And he uses that to begin his restoration project. So go. You have a mission. You have a purpose. You have a value. You're, you're, if you've been rescued and redeemed, you're part of the family of God. He's your father and not my father. He's your God and my God. But the other thing I want you to see, why, why was it so significant that Jesus came back physically? Well, remember the first part of the meta narrative, creation. He really likes his creation. And he could have done it any number of ways. But he died, and it didn't just come back to show that he had power over death in the grave and to validate his ministry, though it did that. He's doing something very physical. See, sometimes we think in, in, in the West, uh, in church, like, well, Christianity is just the, you know, the golden ticket to get to some place called heaven when I die. But, but here, I just kind of have to muddle through life. That's not what's going on here. Jesus' physical bodily resurrection is, is not only stamping his authority, but stamping his, his intention for all of creation. A renewal project has begun. So as you go out, enjoy creation. We don't have to, it doesn't have to be an idol for us anymore. Go, go to a meal with good friends and eat outside of your tax bracket and drink your wine and your beer or your Coke or whatever your thing is and eat your steak. And as you eat it, just remember it's a hint of God restoring all things. So enjoy your hot wings. Enjoy walking your dog. Write some poetry. Sing your songs. Read to your kids. All of it matters because Jesus has rescued it all. So N.T. Wright will say, Jesus is alive, therefore go plant a tree. And what he means by that is we're invited in this restoration project. So uh, he, he says, I don't know what that tree will look like in eternity, but it'll be a real tree and it will be glorious and you can impact eternity now. So fight 
for justice, take care of the oppressed, care for people. All those small acts of restoration will echo forever and ever. To that end, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for for Easter. Thank you that uh, it is our hope, the foundation of our hope. God, thank you for each person here. Thank you for people that you have called by name. They've heard, they've seen, and maybe they just uh, have forgot to savor. Lord, help them to savor this week. Thank you for those that, that are just checking out and maybe have, have never bowed their knee and confessed with their tongue that you are Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that they would have heard a voice other than my voice, your voice, calling them by name. And by grace for, through faith, they can come to you, turn from their sin, and become a new creation. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for the mission that you've given us, that you've said we are the hope by you of Parker and beyond. Help us to walk in that with great joy and great purpose. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.